You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers' Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is a freelance writer, blogger, and author of the best-selling series The Mapmaker Chronicles. She has more than 20 years' professional writing experience. Each week they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writer Centre at writercentre.com.au. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 84 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you, Al? I am very well. Thank you, Valerie. I've been out for a lovely walk with Procrasty Pup this morning. We have got ourselves a, well, me, he yes. doesn't actually drink coffee, <laughs> but we have our, got ourselves a very strong coffee and I used my time wisely because, of course, NaNoWriMo started this week and yes. so we are well and truly into the joys, trials and tribulations of trying to crank out 1,670 whatever words a day. So I was um, trying to think through plot points while I walked with him this morning. Wow. Which is and how not, as entertaining, not as entertaining for him as it is for me because, you know. <laughs> and how are you feeling talk. about NaNoWriMo? Oh, uh, look, you know, uh, fine because I just think it should be approached as a bit of fun. I, I, I think people kind of take it maybe a little bit too seriously sometimes. Um, I mean, it is, it is obviously it's a huge undertaking and stuff like that, but it's also supposed to be a little bit of fun. And so I just try to make it a little bit of fun for myself. Yeah. Now, by entertaining myself. If you're new to this podcast, of course, NaNoWriMo is National Novel Writing Month. It's short for National Novel Writing Month and it's where you write a novel or at least 50,000 words of a novel in the month of November. And that means approximately 1,667 words per day. Yes. I did 1,707 words yesterday. So I'm, you know. You're in credit. I, look, I'm just, I'm going crazy, clearly. Yes. <laughs> Fantastic. I'm well, of on course, fire, Valerie. Of on course, fire. your previous books were the result of NaNoWriMo, correct? That is correct. The first uh, Mapmaker Chronicles book was written, um, you know, several years ago during uh, NaNoWriMo. So I got the first, pretty much the first draft down in in that month. And and I'm sort of like, I, my approach is always just to, you know, do the best you can, try to write every day. Um whatever words you have at the end of the month are more words than you had at the start of the month. Mm. And I think that that's the way to forward. It's been quite interesting because, you know, I do have the Facebook group, the Facebook support group with Alison Rushby, who is a noted planner of novels. And she, she is, I've been watching her because she's been updating daily in the lead up to NaNoWriMo as well as to what she's doing and where she's up to. And, you know, she was naming her characters last week and she had, oh, wow. you know, she had the whole structure worked out and she was, you know, she, like honestly, world's most organized woman. And then she goes to me because we're co- co-hosting this group. She goes, so have you decided what you're writing yet, Al? <laughs> I'm like, no, not really. <laughs> well, you're sure so, that you have by now. You started. Well, I have now. I've started. But, you know, I had a couple of different ideas and I was just waiting sort of to see which one of those was going to be the most exciting on the day. So that's what I'm 
that's what I've done. And you know what I find interesting is that I know a number of people this year who they're not writing novels. So they're not writing fiction. They're writing non-fiction books, but Mm. they're using NaNoWriMo as a, you know, as a way to get momentum and to give give them some impetus to get their word count up there. Well, it's that, it's just that whole, it's a, it's a, it's a group. It's like any team sport, you know, if you're all in it, then you kind of feel like you have to keep up, which means that you are, you will often play well above your, you know, well above your average, so to speak. So um, it's, it's that whole notion of like, because, you know, we've talked about this so many times, you know, finding that self-discipline to sit down and write is so incredibly difficult. But if you feel like you and a million other people are all doing it together. And yes. you can compare notes and everybody's like encouraging you. And if you have a bad day, it's it's like, well, you know, you'll do better tomorrow. And you kind yeah. of think, well, you know what? And you feel there's a, there's a certain sense of I, I, I've actually said this out loud. I've yeah. told these people I'm going to do this. Yeah. Which means I have some accountability in actually getting it done. And I think that that's probably one of the biggest values of NaNoWriMo. Sounds like CrossFit. Probably is. It's a bit culty. I was thinking yes. about this the other day. There are certain things that are a little bit culty, and and I would say Rimo is possibly up there. Yeah, I'd say so. Possibly. Well, let's move on to the world of writing and publishing and blogging this week. Let's do that. A few interesting links, and uh, this link is just from news.com.au, and it's actually about how Australia has um, – really embraced the world of freelancing. And I'm not just referring to freelance writers, but freelancing generally. But that's kind of good news for freelance writers because it means that we're not out there on our, on our own. And uh, they've, Australia has added a further 370,000 like freelancers to its ranks in the past 12 months. So nearly one third of our workforce is now taking part in freelance work, according mm-hmm. to Upwork. Uh, which is jobs marketplace. Yeah, it is a lot. So, you know, I remember when being a freelancer was such an uncommon thing and now it's just really normal for people, whether they're a graphic designer or they're a writer or or whatever. And a lot of people who are going in and out of jobs, like they might do a three-month stint in in a job and then have, you know, five months freelancing and then go back again for a three-month contract job and then go freelancing again. So I'm seeing a lot more of people do that. But what what that made me think about was another link. I just want to say something on that though too before we go any yes. further because I, I look I think it's I think it's great that, you know, people – it says in the article that, that we have the link to that, you know, people, a certain percentage of people are actually making more money than they did in an actual job and yes. um, and that they wouldn't go back to it and all that sort of stuff. But I also think we do need to acknowledge the fact that there aren't as many permanent jobs in those kinds yes. of fields. And so not everybody is freelancing by choice, I, I, you know, whether or not it's working for them at the moment or not. Um, and I think that that's, you know, like it's these kinds of stories, particularly when they're surveyed by uh, sites that, you know, offer jobs for freelancers, um, tend to spin them as, you know, isn't it wonderful everyone's having a great time, but they're not all. And I think that that's something that needs to be acknowledged as well. Yeah, for sure. Mm. I think that um, one thing that I love about the concept of freelancing and that I hope other people embrace and really, you know, 
believe as well is that when you are in a job you have a salary and Mm. that means you have a ceiling there is a cap no matter what because your salary is your salary and Mm. you know unless you have bonuses and stuff uh your your salary is the ceiling but the beauty about freelancing and that's what i recognized from my first year of freelancing the beauty of freelancing is that there is no ceiling if you were prepared to either work efficiently or put in the hours or you know get get the higher paying jobs so in in theory, you can earn heaps more freelancing yes, than you ever did in your salaried job. It's not necessarily – you don't necessarily have the security of the weekly paycheck, but you can get that security if you just play your cards right and get enough work in your funnel kind of thing. Yeah, that's true. But that that's something that, you know, people need to learn to do and it takes time yes. to do that. And you do not – I mean, I think one of the most difficult things, and I've written about this on my blog before – one of the most difficult things for new freelancers to manage can be that ebb and flow. You know, it's feast or famine and it's, you know, until you kind of get yourself into a rhythm, as you say, get your funnel going or, you know, work out sort of you get those, you know, long standing clients who you will do regular work for and that mm. sort of stuff. Um, and so that's why you need to be smart about it. And it's it's really important that you, uh, you know, if you're going to jump from a full-time job to a freelancing job, if you're choosing to do that, and I'm, mm. and I'm not saying that everybody does have this choice, but if you're choosing to do that, then you need to set yourself up in advance, I yes. believe. Don't just go, I've had enough of this, you know, histrionic dramas and walk out and think, okay, I'm freelancing tomorrow because it's, it, it takes some time to get those, get those things in place. Although I have to say that I kind of did that where I just said I had, I've, I've had enough of this with some histrionic drama and, you know, I, my only notice period to myself was whatever my notice period was to my employer. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I think that sheer fear of not having enough money <laughs> – yeah, you know, forced me to really get stuck into freelancing. And even though, yes, it 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 can take time to establish that. I think that what it takes much more of is uh, hard work. Quite simply, just hard work. Because if you get the hard work done early, it saves you a lot of time. Oh, and that's you... absolutely true. But I took a completely yeah. different approach, and I started freelancing while I was working full time somewhere else, um. and. And built my freelancing, um, you know, built my freelancing business up that way. So there's two approaches, and e- you know, each can work equally well. You just need to work out what's going to work best for you. I think. Yes, definitely. Yeah. And gamify it for yourself, even, or or get like reward. I'm a I'm into rewards. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so I had this spreadsheet where. Um, you know, if I achieved a certain level of income that week, a little picture of, you know, some favorite actor or whatever would turn up. And if I achieved a high level in- of income, it would be a picture of John Bon Jovi. And if it was, if I achieved a high level of income, it would be a picture of my baby Rex. So I always wanted to get a Rex week. <laughs> oh, goodness me. <laughs> <laughs> but it gave you me... always employ interesting strategies, Valerie. That's what I like about you. But it gave me an extremely lucrative income in year one by mm. using that little playing the little game with myself. Mm. <laughs> anyway, while we're talking about freelancing, I thought I would talk about co-working because I read an interesting link on the Right Life is a co-working space better for freelancers than working from home. So I thought I'd bring this up because in the last sort of 
couple of months, I have been visiting a co-working space. Maybe one day every, only actually every three weeks. I'm, I'm, I probably do it every two weeks, but at the moment it's just been every three weeks. And um, it's actually been really effective. I didn't think it would be this effective. I just thought I'd try out this co-working space just because it was nearby and I thought it'd be interesting. But uh, yeah, there I am ridiculously productive during the time that I'm there, actually more productive than I am at home because I don't have all my pets, you know, vying for my attention. I don't procrastinate by doing the laundry. There's nothing else to do except get on with it when I'm there. Mm. So it's been really worth it. Wow. Okay. Mm. Have you ever thought of going to a co-working space? I suppose there isn't one near you. Oh, there may be. Uh, no, I haven't ever thought of that. I think partly because um, I, having worked, you know, in offices for a long time and open plan offices and, you know, all of those sorts of things, um, I actually am a lot more efficient at home. Mm. Like I, I really am. Like I, I guess it's a, it's a habit thing, but I am so much more efficient in my own space. I don't write anywhere but at my desk. I mean, we've talked about this before. I can't do cafes or I can't even really do my back table. Not, no. I'm just, I'm just like I am like Pavlov's dog. I sit at my desk and it's like, right here we go. I've got to, I, I've got this to do. I need to do this. I yeah. get that done, and then I go and then I go and do other things. So I think that. Yeah, I haven't ever considered it. I don't think it's something that I would do. I, I get, I go out every day. Like I, as I said, I, I, I took Procrasty Pup out this morning. I always run into someone. I'm in a small town. I always mm. run into someone for a chat or, you know, I'm in at the school doing various bits and pieces. So I have, I, I don't have that thing where I, I'm not talking to anyone all day, every day. And I have the, you know, the boys come home at three o'clock every day. Yes. So it's kind of like, I just have that set number of hours. I know that I have X number of things to do and I just get them done. Yes. And it's well, like, that's how I work. What's interesting about the co-working space is that you think that you go there and you talk to people, but everyone else is just head down, bum up, that you don't talk to anyone. <laughs> so what? So what, what's the difference then? You might as well be at home. Uh, but you don't have the interruptions and distractions. You literally because it's not your place, right? So you're not there fixing, washing up cups of tea, or you Having know, a chat on the phone, yeah, or, or anything like that. Because yeah, you and you're yeah. you're less inclined to chat on the phone because you don't want to disturb everyone around you. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Mm. Well, there you go. Well, it's working for Valerie. So yes. if anybody else has tried a co-working space. You know, let us know. What's your experience been? Yeah. Oh, see, see if you can convince me away from my desk. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Let us know. Now, this is an interesting one that I would love to get your comment on, Al. Mm -hmm. I found this on Writer Unboxed and it's called Losing the Word Weight, <laughs> How to Put Your Manuscript on a Diet. And it's written by Liz Mikowski, who talks about the fact that when she finished her second novel, it was at 160,000 words, which is a little bit too long, really. So she tried to, you know, cut it down and she cut it down by um, 20% and she made it to 140,000 words. And then she sent it to a reader or to her agent who said, maybe you can cut, you know, a bit more, maybe like 40,000 more. And so she was like, oh my God, I, she did a big rewrite, got it down to 120,000 words. And mm. then she, she, a, a, a beta reader said, you got to cut some more. So mm. she tried to cut out as many adverbs as she could and adjectives and dialogue 
tags and and read other books to see how they were, you know, really tight. And she got it down to 108,000. And then she thought, okay, that's it. I'm going to hire an editor to help me cut it down. Now, do you have this problem when you're writing your books of, you know, uh, overwriting and then how do you determine what of your precious words get cut? Okay, so my problem is actually more the other end of the scale. I tend to be an underwriter. Um, I always have been. So my problem is actually generally more that I need to, um, you know, it's more detail, more explanation, more whatever. So Mm. mostly I have found that I've been asked to, you know, expand this or add that or why is this here or, you know, that Mm. sort of stuff. Um, However, having said that, I think that if you – uh, if you have that situation where you have 120,000 words or however many she had, I, I actually don't know that going through and taking out dialogue tags and I don't know that that is the best way forward to get your word count down. Mm-hmm. I think what you probably need to look at doing is removing scenes. Mm-hmm. And do you know what I mean? I, because I I think what happens, particularly when we le- when we do our first draft and things like that, is that we think that everything we write is amazing and that everything is essential and, you know, it's it's all that sort of stuff. Um, and, you know, all I can do is take out the justs and the adjectives. Um, <laughs> when in actual fact, the, you probably need to look at the story and you need to actually plot the story out and have a look at how the story is working. And then you've got to look at every single scene. And I got this tip from my my agent actually and she she said to me because there was a scene that I had written in the first Mapmaker book I think I've talked about this before and she said to me you need to lose that scene and it was quite a long scene it was integral it was in the middle of the book and she said to me it needs to go because you've taken the point of view away from the hero and I'm like yeah but I'm trying to explain and she goes exactly you're trying to explain mm-hmm. it needs to go and that information needs to go into other scenes mm-hmm. so that the reader is not given this massive dump of information in the middle of the book. And I, yes. when she explained it to me like that, I thought, oh, you're absolutely right. She said it's not driving the story forward. Mm-hmm. All you're doing is explaining stuff. And w- if you look at every scene in your novel from that perspective, is this scene driving the story forward what does it actually tell the reader about what's going on is it absolutely essential for you know sort of ex- not explaining but get allowing your character's you know personality to come forward or a, a certain you know plot point or whatever mm. if it's not can that information go elsewhere in a much much more succinct fashion and i think that that's probably one of the most important lessons I've learned over doing many structural edits now because I've done quite a few now. Mm. Um, And I remember when I first got my first structural edit, I was at a complete loss as to where to even begin. But now I've done several and I've got more of an idea. And if someone says to you, this scene is not necessary Mm. as a reader, then listen to what they're saying to you. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. That's great advice. So that's interesting. Do you think that you have an economy with words, you know, because you said that you're often told to expand more? Do you feel you have an economy with words because of your journalism background where we have to be really, really succinct all the time? Uh, I think it's partly that. I think, you know, I'm I'm used to word counts, you know, and yeah. so in, in my head, so for example, a middle grade fiction novel of the type that the Mapmaker Chronicles is, is approximately 45 to 55,000 words. Like it's, mm. it's, it's in that ballpark. Mm. So always in my head, I have that word count. You write and I, reckon, and yeah. I, I do. And I, and I know that like a commercial 
um, you know, women's novel is going to be around the 90,000 mark at the most, like 75 to 90. So I'm not a fan of, of overwriting. I've never been a fan because when you're a freelance writer, you do not get paid for those extra words. No. And all you're doing is making more work <laughs> for someone else and they will not love you. Yes. So I think I've just got that going on. But the other thing I think is that I like books and this is just me as a reader, and so you write what you like to read. I, I like books where the story pushes forward. Like I cannot stand being bogged down in long passages of a description, yeah. no matter how beautifully written. And I, know, I mean, you know what, I know they're beautifully written and there are sentences that I read that make my you know heart pound with glory mm. and all that sort of stuff, but I do not want pages of them because it just drives me mental. I just want to know what's going to happen next. And I guess because I write without a spreadsheet plan without a you know I don't I don't write with a everything planned out in advance my main aim is to find out what's going to happen next and I think that that's why my often my first and second drafts are underwritten because Mm. I am racing towards the end of that book to find out what's going to happen (laughs) and then I have to go back and sort of think oh well people might need to know this you know that kind of stuff all right, so great it. advice. Thanks for sharing. Yeah, wow, well, that was probably an overshare. Sorry, everyone. No, no, I've, that was good. I've overshared on my over on my underwriting. <laughs> <laughs> so, just a reminder to everyone that we have a book giveaway every week, and this week's an interesting one. It's called Maxi and the Magic Money Tree, and this is Ooh. actually written by Tiffany Hall. So, it's it's for kids. It's a kids' book, like for ages nine and over. And Tiffany, you may recognize as the white trainer on The Biggest Loser. Hmm. Yes, so not only is she a trainer, a personal trainer, she's also a kids' book writer. But the point of this book is that it asks the question, what would you do if you found a money tree growing in your house? And that is what Maxine, uh, who is the uh, you know title character, must suddenly contemplate. So if you want to win a copy of the book, just go to writerscentre.com.au slash win and this competition closes the 9th of November if you're listening to this podcast you know in the future because you're going through our back catalogue don't worry just go to that same URL writerscentre.com.au slash win and there'll be another book available to you right so let's move on to another book which is our writing craft book for this week Al Yes, it is. Now, this is um, it's it's not a new book, but it's most certainly one of those books that um, comes up regularly in conversation. Mm. So, I'm currently reading Story by Robert McKee, which is widely regarded as like the Bible of screenwriting. Yes, um, and it's quite an interesting thing because I, I've been talking to a lot of writers recently uh, over the last couple of years who have if not a screenwriting background, then they've certainly studied screenwriting, even in the process of writing their novels. So if you think about um, our very first podcast um, in- interview was with Graham Simpson, the yes. author of The Rosie Project. The Rosie Project started out as a screenplay, became a novel, and then is back to being a screenplay because there's going to be a movie about it, yes. um, which was interesting. And I also went to um, recently to a, a, a library talk with the author um, Shirley Barrett, who's written a book called Rush O, which is about whaling. It's actually the Pink Fibro Book Club uh, was was our book last month. So I went along to, to see her talk about that book. And she is also a filmmaker by by trade, and she originally wrote the this particular story as a screenplay and then, you know, decided that it was probably going to be too 
uh, A, expensive and B, probably too confronting because it is about whale, um, Mm. you know, the whaling industry in Australia um, in the early 1900s, um, too confronting to put on the screen. So she decided to write the novel and she had never written a novel before. So it was, she found it quite an interesting process taking it from a screenplay to a novel. So I thought to myself, I need to find out what all this screenplay stuff is about because if you think about the basics of a story, um, that's pretty much what a screenplay is. It's, yep. it's really nuts and bolts of, of a story. And then the director and the actors and everybody else gets involved and add all those beautiful layers on top of it to, to turn it into a film. Mm. So I'm reading this book by Robert McKee on story. And I have to say that I think that it is something that if you are writing a novel, um, it's well worth reading. It's a really interesting thing because it talks a little bit about what we were just discussing before about how that story has to be the essence of everything that you do. And it, it doesn't matter how beautiful your words are. If there is no story, um, then readers will not go with you. Mm. They, they won't follow you. They won't get to the end of the book. They will fling it at the wall and that is the last thing that you want. So, um, I yeah, I'm finding it a very, very interesting read and I, I'd, I'd recommend it. I mean, it was recommended to me and I would most assuredly recommend it to other people. I think it's a really interesting um, read. Have you dabbled into screenwriting? Um, no, I have not dabbled into screenwriting at this stage of my existence, but it's, um, I, I've, I'm finding the principles interesting and it's possibly, so I don't know, would I do it? I don't know. I dabbled uh, many years ago. I decided to dip my toe in the water and, um, dab to dabble in television series script writing. And I did a whole bunch of courses, uh, in various countries and, um, uh, you know, decided to, and I spent a week with the script writers at uh, a, a cop show, <laughs> and um, and it was just a fascinating experience. And one of the things that I mean, I gained a lot of skills, which has have been really, really useful. And it, of course, it was wonderful to go behind the scenes of something like that. But for me, uh, script writing, especially in a television series, is such a collaborative process. There are so mm. many people involved. There's a story editor, there's other script writers, there's, you've got to take into account the capabilities of the actors, whether they can pull certain things off. Um, you have to take into account how many minutes are being shot outside in outside scenes mm. so that because it depends on it's expensive yeah budget and production mm-hmm. and all of that and I just was like there's too many people involved with me mm. I wanted to go back into my own little world and just write by myself mm. so but it was a fascinating experience anyway well, yeah, and I, look, I think it's worth, it's always worth having a look. I think whether you're focused on writing novels or fo- focused on writing nonfiction or whatever you're focused on, mm. it's always good to have a look at what other people are doing. And there is actually another screenwriting book that I read several years ago um, called Save the Cat hmm. by Blake Snyder, S-N-Y-D-E-R, and that was also a really, really interesting read. And it's funny because the only thing that I really remember from that, like you, re- you read a lot of stuff, was this whole notion of saving the cat. And um, I, I, that did come out in the Map Maker books, mm. interestingly. Mm. Yeah. Mm. What, um, what's been happening in the world of blogging? What, what have we got? Well, uh, I just thought that given that we are at the start of NaNoWriMo and many of our listeners will probably be, you know, if not getting involved in that, then at least sort of perhaps taking inspiration from it. Um, the Australian Writers' Centre blog uh, this 
week has 10 nuggets of writing advice from 10 Australian Writers' Centre presenters, um, which I think is worth a read because Mm. uh, you're obviously talking about people who are experts in their field, who are still working as experts in their field, and it's a great thing to see what these people have got to say. Like, they're award-winning authors, a lot of these people, and I think that it's uh, worth having a look at what they... um, their advice, their one nugget of writing advice that you can take into NaNoWriMo with you. I like what Patty Miller says. Uh, She says, I always recommend what I call the patchwork quilt method, where you just make one small piece and then another small piece. You do that for a while. You don't even think about where to go or how to put it together or what the overall thing is for a start. That's the way to get started. Otherwise, you'll be stopped before you even begin. So uh, I like that because sometimes you just have scenes, you have ideas for scenes and you don't know where those scenes are going to go. But if you don't start writing them down, they're not going to go anywhere. No, that's right. And I think Kate Forsyth's um, advice is something that all NaNoWriMo participants need to take as well, which is a problem that I see is that people aren't taking the time to edit and rewrite. They finish Mm. a first draft and think that that's all that needs to be done. You have all kinds of little problems, things like overuse of favourite phrases, weak chapter beginnings, chapters that are too long, weak metaphors, things that are good cut and polish and a good rewrite, a deconstruction rewrite would fix. And I think that's something that, you know, everybody who finishes a first draft needs to bear in mind. Your first draft is not your book, which is, you know, disappointing when you you know, you've got there and you think, yes, I've done it. I've typed the end and then you go back and you start all over again. But it's <laughs> um, it's really worth doing because that's where the magic really comes from. Yeah. And who is our writer in residence this week? Well, our writer in residence this week is Tristan Banks and he is a children's author. His book Two Wolves has just won the Yabber Award wow. uh, for, I'm pretty sure it's older readers, but it's – um. Uh, he he is has got an interesting thing because he I think I mentioned earlier he's got some screenwriting in his background. Yes. Um, this book, Two Wolves, the one that has just won the award, was very much a labour of love for him. This is something that he had. He, he even says, you know, interview, you know, he wasn't exactly sure if he had the writing chops for it, um, but he persisted with it. And I think it's quite interesting to talk to him about his. Um, his journey as an author and the way that he's pushed himself and challenged himself. So here is Tristan. Tristan Banks is a children's and teen author with a background in acting and filmmaking. His books include the My Life series, Max Slater Cool Hunter, which was published in Australia and the US, and Two Wolves, a crime mystery novel for middle graders. Two Wolves was shortlisted for the 2015 Children's Book Council of Australia Book of the Year Award and has just won the Yabba Award for years seven to nine, decided by the young readers of Victoria. So welcome to the program, Tristan. Hi, thanks. All right, so let's let's go back to the beginning. Let's, you know, all those years ago. Um, how did you come to write for children and teens in the first place? Like, what drew you to it? Um, I had presented kids' TV in England for about four years from when I was about 20. And, uh, yeah, just, just sort of fell into that. I think I, um, I actually pitched a program to ITV and we got a few episodes of this show up and I hosted it. And then that opened up the opportunity to present other kids' TV shows. So I did a kind of show that was a bit like the Curiosity Show called It's a Mystery, which was fun. Oh, that's fun. And uh, I did sort of adrenaline sports shows and movie shows and lots of things that I was interested in I would pitch and then I would end up sort of writing, researching, presenting 
Um, yeah, and, and then so I think I've always sort of enjoyed uh, theme parks, and I've always enjoyed the kind of things that kids like. I suppose I don't think I ever grew out of those things, and I also have always wanted to do what I want to do. I I, did, I never wanted to kind of conform and just do the thing that I was supposed to do and I, th- I think that's a kind of childlike uh, attribute in a way. All right. <laughs> um, I, I also, uh, and then when, when my kids were born, I'd been, I'd been making short films and I had been working in TV and I had been working as a freelance journalist and I thought, well, it'd be good to combine my storytelling interests with the fact that I have children now and uh, and I had a chance to write some educational um, educational fiction books for Scholastic, I think it was. Right. Yeah, and, and that was my that was that my way. first. Yeah, so they were my first children's books. All right. So you, I mean, you've sort of been immersed in all aspects of of you know. You were talking about writing, presenting, like you you've sort of immersed yourself in that children's world quite wholly and solely for a while, haven't you? Yeah, and I think I think for a while though, I was looking for a unifying element. You know, I had presented TV and I had acted and I had, uh, you know, made short films and then I seemed to be writing kids' books and I'd written, you know, about filmmaking for magazines and I was thinking, am I just uh, just, just wandering from one thing to the other and not really knowing what I want to do? But, I, I mean, storytelling was always the thing. I always wanted to tell stories, whether it was sort of non-fiction or fiction, uh, particularly fiction, but um, but storytelling's always been at the heart of of all of those things that I've done. Okay, so your earlier works, and particularly, I guess, the My Life series, are kind of funny contemporary stories with a bit of that gross-out humour that kids love so much. Um, but Two Wolves is actually quite a departure from that. Why did you decide to write that story? Uh, I think. I think I just wanted to challenge myself to write it. I didn't sort of talk to anyone about that book for quite a while. I I spent like several years using having that as my sort of story in the background that I worked on for maybe an hour a day. I used to wake up at about six o'clock in the morning and work till seven before anyone was up. And it was just my side project. Um, I couldn't afford to make it my, my front project because I had other things that had deadlines, other books that had deadlines, but it was just something that I was just interested in. And I thought, do I have the writing chops to be able to do this? And I didn't know if I did, so I thought it was best not to talk to anyone about it or to try and sort of um, you know get my publisher involved too early because I didn't want them to say, yes, we'd love it and we'll you know, deliver it in nine months. And then <laughs> I'd think, ah, I don't actually know how to write it. Um, so, and I, and I think that was... Looking back, that was actually the healthiest thing I ever did. I think um, having a deadline is good because you have to finish at some point, but it also means that you have to abandon the story at some point, and that's not great. As a writer, you want it to be as good as it can possibly be. Yeah. So where did the idea for it come from in the first place? Uh, I had read about kids who had been taken on the run by their parents who were criminals, quite a few stories about it, and it just intrigued me. I just thought... What is it? I don't, for some reason, I sort of felt like it was my story. I didn't. I didn't think that I had been taken on the run as a kid, but there was something about the sort of self-reliance of it. You know, I was an '80s kid, uh, and and you know, latchkey kid as as a lot of us were, and you sort of had a, a lot of freedom that. I don't see in my kids' generation, you know, we as mm. parents are always hanging around and annoying them and making their lives miserable by making them, you know, by, by being there all the time. Yeah. But but as a um, as a kid in that era, you know, I had all this space and time to think and be and there was something about the kind of 
um, the kind of not knowingness of of that situation, the fact that you had to come to your own decisions and make your own choices and be a bit self-reliant that um that I sort of related to in these kids who who had been taken on the run. All right, so what was the most difficult thing about writing the story for you? Like you you said that um you know you weren't quite sure if you had the writing chops for it. Was the ex- was it the exploration of that that was the most difficult thing or or was something else? I think I'd always aspired towards writing books that were kind of at the intersection of um, genre and meaning in that I wanted to write books that were fast-paced and engaging, that made you turn pages, but I also wanted to try to write books <coughs> that were about something, you know, that were that wrestled with, with ideas, I guess, that, that are relevant to, to kids of, of, of my sort of the age of my readership. Mm-hmm. And I tried to do that with my book, uh, Galactic Adventures, First Kids in Space, um, you know, they were, they were each dealing with their, their own issues. Mm. Um, but I, I guess I'd be, I guess I lent, I was still too scared to slow down the narrative, you know, with Max Slater, Cool Hunter and the sequel to that and the My Life books and Galactic Adventures, I was still, uh, scared to be boring. You know, I thought mm. I've got to go accelerate all the way through this. I've got to make this page turning. The twists have to be so big that it just drives you onto the next thing. But the problem with that is that you it's difficult then and you and you don't trust yourself to take the time to really um maybe develop the characters and, and the sort of internal um uh conflict of the character. Mm-hmm. And on Two Wolves I thought, well, there's not a publisher waiting for it. It doesn't have to be the most exciting thing in the world. I'm just gonna gonna take my time a bit with it. And actually, you know, uh out of that I, I sort of maybe found a richer narrative. So did it surprise you when it ended up on so many awards lists, like given that it was something that you weren't sure about, but yeah, then were I mean, sure about? Uh, in, as an actor and as a um, making in making short films and things that I'd done for TV, I had always been in the situation where I was writing, where I'd do one thing that was, that was obviously commercial and mm. then one thing that wasn't that commercial. And it was always the thing that was that was more commercial that you you know that was easier to kind of turn out that got attention, mm. whereas the thing that you had bled for um, often would would come <laughs> second place kind of thing, and people would ignore it or go, oh yeah yeah no that's good, but look at this other thing. So I was pretty convinced that actually that would happen. I was writing the My Life books at the same time, yeah. and Two Wolves in the background, and I thought, well you know the My Life books are much more obviously commercial. Um, and Two Wolves may... I thought I'd pick that spot right between it not being um, meaningful enough for for people who are looking for that uh, to be to be interested in and also not being um, perhaps fast-paced enough for mm. people who are only looking for an action-adventure story. Mm. Um, but, yeah, the fact that it sort of was noticed in the Yabbers and the CBCA awards makes me think that I, I went some way towards, um, towards that goal. It's an interesting thing too because I think that there's very much I think in children's publishing at the moment there's the series is is very big um and kids love series because they love to know that there's another one if they like it etc. So yeah. you know when you're writing a standalone novel um do you have that in the back of your mind as well like well this has got to work really really well or not at all so to speak? Um I think I was playing around with it being um a series at one point. And, you know, thinking of it being three books, but I think the the further I went into it, um, usually I might write 
five drafts of a book before I show it to another human, you know, show mm. it to a publisher or something. And on this one, I sort of got to five drafts and I could have shown it, but I thought, oh, I, I sort of really want to know it more myself before I invite anyone else in. Mm. And so I went to seven drafts before mm. I showed it to someone else. And I think out of that, um, I really, uh, I think in in that period of time, writing those two extra drafts, I think that's when it became a standalone novel. Right. I really, I, I didn't, I, I, I sort of got more faith, I guess, in that thing of, of finding the meaning in the story and, and letting it stand alone and not sort of, um, uh, not being too worried if, if it didn't sort of drive someone on to the next, to the next book. I wanted it to, 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 to be recognised as a story in and of itself. Did it change much from that seventh draft? <laughs> like once it's, you know, from that um, to its published form? Look, not not in terms of um, ripping out chapters and things. I had already sort of um, uh, pulled out. Um, I have a holding bay file and I think I had something like 40,000 words in a holding bay, bay and it's a 50,000 word novel. And then there were, must have been hundreds of thousands of words that were written in notepads that, that never made it in too. So wow. um, I think... I had already pulled out so much that it was reasonably tight. What did, what really helped, um, Kimberly Bennett, my my uh, editor at Random House, she really drove me just to tighten and hone and all those little leaps in logic. Mm. Um, there was a, there's a lot in the story, as you know, um, when you write a novel, it's not just the overarching idea of the story. On every page and in every line, there's some little idea driving it forward. And so there were thousands of those things, and and she really helped me to um, tighten the language, um, and also I think um, straightening out the age of it too, the mm. age of the the character, and making that more consistent across the book. Mm. Um, and I think just all those all those little leaps in logic that you, after you've read it a um, hundred and fifty times yourself, you don't see those things anymore. Yes, so true. Yeah. <laughs> So will you do more standalone novels, do you think, or are you heading back into your series next, or what happens? Um, I sort of, um, we seem to have a sort of thing where a My Life book comes out every year, mm-hmm. um, and they're fun, you know, they're short stories, um, it's 25,000 words, so um, it's, I can I can write short stories in cracks in time, you know, I can jump mm-hmm. on a plane and I can I can work through a draft of a short story in while I'm on the plane, or I can do it um, if I'm visiting a school. I can I can work over a short story, you know, in the in the gaps in time during that day, or you know, I just love writing short stories um, because they uh, oh, I don't know they, they they're not they're not that sort of over they're not that huge arc, and mm. I know the characters now as well, so it feels like a really comfortable place. Great. So there's a, a new My Life book out in March. 2016 and mm-hmm. it's called My Life and Other Exploding Chickens and uh, <laughs> that sounds like fun <laughs> yeah yeah and it has it's really been and I actually I keep saying to myself okay don't don't write another My Life book unless you really feel like you are getting something out of it as though it's you know make yourself a new challenge dig deeper try and I'm, I'm really sort of trying to understand comedy and comedy writing in, in greater detail mm. to really understand the anatomy of a joke and how to make that work, and and so that that drives me to want to write the next book um, as well. So yeah, I feel like I feel like I learn a lot about plot and a lot about um, brevity. You know, in a short story, you have to be so succinct, and every word has to has to earn its place. And I feel like that 
that kind of um, succinctness can can work well in a novel too. Do you actually plot out your stories or do you just, like whether they be novels or short stories, do you plot them before you write them or do you just sort of start writing something from an idea and see what happens? I used to, I came from um, a screenwriting sort of background. That's how I kind of learnt to write fiction, I suppose, in writing um, writing screenplays. And so that's very much a um, an outline heavy. You know, you're always taught to outline and to step outline and to get it really tight before you dive in. Mm. I guess because the screenplay itself is not a not a very pretty medium. You know, it's a it's a kind of blueprint for something else. Mm. Um, so, so the first few books that I did, and, and just to know that I could get through them, I, I plotted them heavily, you know. I had the cards up on the wall, and I'd rework the cards, and I'd throw out this one, and I'd wait till I really knew, as well as doing free writes on the side, and <clears throat> and I'd really get that outline tight, and then I'd plunge into the first draft. And I think it was also a way of um, not ending up with a really messy first draft. I, I really didn't like that thing that, you know, you'd, if you just free wrote... You read back the first draft and it was like, oh, this thing is in such bad shape. I'm going to have to do so much work on it. Whereas if you had an outline, you know, your first draft wasn't wasn't that terrible. You could feel the story, you know. Um, but what but. I discovered on Two Wolves was um, actually, uh, for me, it makes for a much better story if you're prepared to go down deep into that the dark woods of that of that messy first draft and just let it be what it is and then plunge into a really messy second draft and you're, you're kind of feeling out the geography of the story mm. and the characters and you're going to all these dead ends and s- scenes and chapters that will be cut. But, but out of that, I think you really get a sense of the... Um, you know what's underground in the story, and 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 where the characters have been, and what might have happened, and all those things. And so, I really sort of try to do that now. I try not to be too too plotty from the beginning, and and then maybe on a third draft or something like that, I'll I'll go and do an outline just to sort of um, oh tighten things up. But but by then, I feel like you've you've really kind of discovered so much. Mm, interesting. Yeah. So you've kind of gone from one to the other because a lot of people will start out you know being a person who just starts with an idea and keeps going and they find themselves down so many dead ends that they start they actually probably come back the other way more and they will outline more whereas you've actually gone from you've actually done that in reverse which I find really interesting yeah I think I think it, it, it's more daring to not outline from the beginning you know <laughs> and, I, and I think I wasn't very daring and I think I'm perhaps becoming more daring because I'm not scared that I'm not going to finish the book now. I know I can finish a book yeah. and now it's about me making the story rich enough. That's the thing that's that's really hard for me. Yeah. It's not that's about making, making it exciting, but it's making it you know something that you really can get your teeth into. So how much time do you spend each day writing? Because I know that you have a fairly busy life in many areas. I mean, do you have a routine that you try to follow? Yeah, I try to um, I try to speak, um, you know, maybe uh, keep it to like four months of the year or something. And I speak in March, and I try, you know, in May, and uh, sort of, you know, July, August, and beginning of September are pretty busy. But mm-hmm. I I try to sort of contain it these days so that there are months in between where I write because I find that if I if I um, speak and tour and speak and tour for a long period at once, I start to get nervous and anxious that I'm not writing. Yeah. And uh, and I find that if at least in that period of the year, if it's a month on, a month off, then it allows me to um, to really uh, 
oh, I feel like I'm getting some writing done, and then I really enjoy the speaking, and um, and then and then from about September through to February, I get about six months where I can really get down into um, the bigger book uh, uh, that I'm working on, and mm-hmm. um, yeah, and that's that's really good. And I try to I try to write from uh, eight to twelve, <coughs> excuse me, each day on the main project that I'm working on, yeah, and. Um, and I used to try to do. I used to do two thousand words a day, um, and now I find on on Two Wolves and on the next book that I'm working on, that's another sort of crime mystery. I find it it ends up more like a thousand words in a day. Okay. And that's just more comfortable. And um, yeah, I, I just find it they're better words when I do the thousand. So I've had to sort of um, you know <laughs> not be too hard on myself. Fair enough. Um, yeah. I remember I remember Valerie talking about an interview she did with you where I, I think this was a couple of years ago because um, I think your children are quite young. She said where you you used to go for a walk each morning and actually write on your phone as you walked. Are you still doing yeah. that? Yeah, I do still do that. I um I was doing it yesterday actually there you go. Um, on the beach and um you tend to the reason I do it is that I'll sit down in the morning and I'll write and then you know after an hour and a half or so you get twitchy and you get you know you need you need to move and um and so I'll go out with uh, you know a chapter maybe a, a new chapter it's more difficult to edit on the phone as you walk <laughs> yes. but uh in terms of new new stuff I'll sort of go okay I've got this problem with this particular scene or chapter and I'll go out and I'll write and I'll work through that problem and I'll find the fresh air and the sound of the ocean and the forward motion um sort of makes you get your mind off it a little bit which then allows the solution to come um, or I'll find a, a you know a fresh chapter that I haven't started on yet. <coughs> Excuse me, and I'll um, I'll dive into that and and find the first draft uh, as I walk. And it, it does end up uh, those scenes and chapters often do end up being some of the better stuff that I write. Strangely. Do you, do you worry about falling over as you type as you walk? <laughs> uh, I do. I usually walk on uh, you know reasonably deserted beaches. <laughs> <laughs> I can just see you walking into the back of someone. Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah no, because you do. You get totally focused and you, you sort of look up and you think, oh, my God, where am I? But, uh, <laughs> I, yeah, they're usually pretty – it's not like Bondi on Christmas Day kind of thing. No, no. And at least there's no traffic for you to avoid. Yes. So um, are you a person um, as far as, you know, I think you mentioned before – do you have you have notebooks? You write in notebooks. So do you have notebooks of ideas, and you just sort of just move on to the next one when you finished a book, or do you like what's your inspiration process? Are you? I know we've spoken to some authors who don't have any idea of what they're going to write next until they're sort of writing the last chapter of their current project, and then we have other authors who've just got like a stack of notebooks and they just pull out the next one when they're ready to do something. Are you somewhere in between that, or? Um, I do. I do. I'm, I'm always writing in notebooks. Um, I don't get back to reread the notebooks as often as I would like these days. Um, mm. So, you know, it's a process and you get things down and um, sometimes, and, and in theory I go back and reread them and then highlight the best stuff. And just by letting that compost and rereading the notebooks from time to time, one of the ideas that you've got brewing back there kind of bubbles to the surface and, mm. and becomes the next book. Um, so... Look, I, I do, I always do, I, I don't think I'd be very good, I think I'd be too nervous as I neared the end of a book, not knowing what was going to come at all. <laughs> um, you know, I, I sort of have 
I, I do have a couple of books that are always kind of jockeying for position to be the next book. And, so, and there are often things that I've had in the back of my mind or wrote a, wrote a draft of three years ago and then put it away or um, have been yeah, just noodling away with for a couple of years. That's, that's when I find the, that's how I find that the projects ripen. And have you ever, are they all for children? Have you ever written a draft of a novel for adults or anything? Is that something you would ever do, do you think? Um, I don't really think about it, actually. I don't, I find it satisfying enough writing stuff for kids, especially writing, you know, the My Life's are for younger um, kids and they're more, you know, I'm more in, you know, freestyling mode and humour and, and they're just plain fun. Mm-hmm. And I find that satisfies a certain part of my personality. And then I find having having a bigger um, sort of more layered novel uh, happening in the background of that uh, satisfies the other part of me. And I find in those layered novels you can really get into some big ideas, you know. Mm. Um, and I think perhaps writing for children um, makes you be more clear and makes you, uh, yeah, just write in a, in a more succinct way. Um, yeah, I, I don't really think much about writing for adults. And I mean... Uh, that's just a, an instinctive thing. But aside from that, I think that um, you develop an audience for your books and mm. it takes a long time to develop mm. an audience for your books, years. Yep. And I think um, unless you just happen to write an eye of the sheep or something that, that sort of just knocked everyone out of the ballpark, that you know, yep. um, then I think it's really difficult to then develop a whole other audience. You know, mm. It takes a long time for people to find your stories. So... Mm. I guess I'm, um, and I think just having kids at this time, yeah, too, I'm, I'm, I love writing stories that I can then, you know, try out on them and, and that appeal to them. Speaking of, you know, finding your audience and things like that, you do a lot of school visits. Um, well, just you seem to, like I'm just watching your progress from afar. But yeah. um, do you find that to be, is that an effective way, the most effective way, you think, to reach your audience at this stage? Yeah, I, at first I didn't think that I would necessarily enjoy doing school visits in that, you know, I thought, well, I've got all this writing to do and I want to be left alone to write and, and then that'll lead into my time and all that sort of stuff. But actually, once I started doing school visits, I realised that, well, A, you know, once you worked out, you know, a few things that you could talk about, you know, it's difficult at first because you don't know what to say, mm. and then you work out a few things that you like to talk about and it forces you to bring the stories to life in different ways. And I think mm. that's pretty important. So, um, you know, I think it is a good way to reach your readers and I think it has a really great effect in terms of um, inspiring kids to, to read and to write their own stories. Um, but I sort of tr- really like that aspect of it that you are forced to think about your stories in different ways. Mm. And often, you know, like I was, the, the book that I've been working on that I'm working on at the moment that's maybe at a fourth draft. Um, I wrote a first draft of it maybe three or three and a half years ago. And um, about a year ago, I was really lost and I was thinking, oh, I don't know if this thing's working. And I thought, I'll read the first draft, I mean, the first chapter of it, the first draft. So I spent spent three weeks at this school reading. uh, I, I thought I'll read the first chapter of it to this group. And for some crazy reason... I, I happened to choose a year nine group on a Friday afternoon oh, last period. Tristan, what which were you just, Oh, I don't know. I'm insane. <laughs> and, and you know that that is the worst possible group to, to you know, and that they're going to riot and they're going to throw stuff at you. Oh, um, yeah. But actually, amazingly, they sort of leaned in and, and 
really kind of engaged with the story and then and then asked, you know, what happens next? And I was like, okay, well, Maybe that's really good because right. yeah. I suddenly have faith in this story that that I was that I was really worried about. And and I think that kind of thing in those really difficult writing periods can can drive you forward. Mm. The fact that the fact that it is you know that the story does engage people in some way makes you think, okay, yeah, you know, I, I know why I'm writing this. <laughs> Okay, so apart from not speaking to Year 9 on a Friday afternoon, which I have to tell you the idea of that just makes me feel quite ill, um, have you got any tips for you know new or aspiring children's authors on creating a successful school visit? Like what, what have you found works well for you? Like just give me a couple of ideas. Um, I think um, don't talk down to the kids, you know, mm. try to be, just be you. Um, don't try to sort of make it, hey kids, or, you know, just... <laughs> I think, and I think genuinely, the way to not be nervous about it too is just to tell your stories, tell the stuff that you're genuinely enthusiastic about, as opposed to thinking too much about what will I say that they will like. Mm. So I think if you if you genuinely love the stories that you're working on, and if they started out in some interesting way, or you gathered together interesting images while you were working on it, or there was some particular, you know, two-minute news story that you saw on YouTube while you were researching, or there was music that you listened to um, while you were writing that, that had some impact on the story, you know, pulling all that stuff together, the, the thing that inspired you, and then sharing it with other people, whether they be kids or adults, because I find if you find something good, it, it works on either audience. Um, I think that's the way, you know, just share your genuine excitement about a, a particular story and people um, will respond to that. What what about the idea of building an author platform? Like, you know, this is talked about a lot in a lot of different circles. Like, do you put much thought into that as to kind of raising your profile online or any of those sorts of things? Yeah, I have done. I have done over time um, thought, uh, you know, I always knew, I think, from the very beginning, um, back when, you know, uh, you know, if you, you know, eight years ago or something if you googled my name it, before I had a website actually it would be I don't know whatever random things came up a Wikipedia from acting work that I'd done 10 years before or uh, I don't know so mm. you just didn't have any control and I think I, I my agent sort of came from a background of being a web mistress and she sort of pointed me towards the idea that you know you can you can have a strong uh, say in what comes up in those top 10 Google rankings. Mm. And she sort of suggested how important that was. And I thought, okay, well, if I set up a website and she was like, yeah, and set up Facebook and set up this. And I was like, oh, do I have to? And she, <laughs> said, she said, yeah, 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 do it, do it. And I was like, okay. And so I sort of set up everything. I had a MySpace about eight years ago and I, wow. and I set up a site and I, um, and then in sort of 2009, I think Zoe Walton, my publisher at Random House, she said, you know what, Twitter would be really good for you. And I was like, no, don't make me. <laughs> and then I set up Twitter and, and then, and then you know, uh, and I've really, that's one that I've really enjoyed. I like the brevity of it. Mm. Um, and I like the sharing of ideas and information and um, the fact that it's not, um, you don't have to divulge too much of your own personal stuff. Mm. Um yeah, so I think I think I've just had a go at everything. I've got YouTube, and I put my book trailers up on there. I've got um, a blog, which is the kind of core of my website, and I think I like the fact that it means that the front page of my website is constantly turning over. If you go there, 
every week or a couple of times a week, sometimes three times a week, there's going to be something new there, or a review of a book or some news or a, something interesting in the world of kids' books. Yep. So I think it's been partly, uh, partly sort of me wanting to experiment, partly sort of being pushed to try things and not wanting to, but then actually enjoying it afterwards. <laughs> and I, I really think it is, it is worth diving into all these things and, and sort of seeing how you can do it in a way that feels authentic to you. Yeah. And if you really don't like a particular platform, then not, then, you know, don't do it. Don't do it. Yeah. So where do you, you where do you put your time now that you've tried everything in the world, including MySpace, where do you choose to put your time now? So Twitter <laughs> um, and your blog mostly? Uh, probably Twitter and I, and I really like Instagram actually. I put up an image on Instagram. I try to do it, you know, once a day on weekdays and, um, yeah, and I and I really enjoy it in that I like um, visual things, um, and 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 it seems like a good way to to engage with the readership too. You know, like I was going to say, do you find you get your readers there on Instagram? Because I think yeah. a lot of kids are are using that platform. Yeah, not not so much on Facebook, not mm. on Twitter. Probably more more so um, on YouTube and Instagram. Kids will leave messages, and and I tend not to, um, you know follow back on Instagram because I sort of think that kids need to be able to have their own space mm. and their own privacy and things. And kids will say, follow me, follow me. <laughs> and, uh, and I just sort of say, oh, look, I just think that, you know, you should have your own space and you don't need, you know, adults who are not in your family, you know, uh, looking at your pictures every day sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, but I say, you know, feel free to leave comments here on any of my images and I'll always, I'll always um, you know, chat back. And, yeah, and that seems to work really well. Oh, that's good. That's a, yeah, well, that's yeah. that's a good tip actually because I think that is a difficult thing for you know adults on Instagram because if you do have a, a large child readership, you don't really want to be too involved in it, do you? I think so. I, 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 there's something. I think you have to be really careful to to sort of draw that line, and mm. uh, and I think that just that thing too of of kids sharing whatever they're doing. I, I don't know. I I. I've, for my own kids would want to know which adults were sort of yep. seeing the things that my kids were putting up online. So Definitely. yeah, no, I think I think having that conversation, but it not being um, invasive, is really important. Hmm. All right, and our last question for today's exciting interview is our usual one that we ask, which is that we're looking for three top tips for aspiring authors. What have you got for me? Oh, and you're going, why didn't you tell me that you were going to do this, Alison? <laughs> no, three top tips for, for aspiring authors. Um, I would say that old chestnut of, well, cert- certainly writing every day is goes without saying. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to write something every day, whether it's towards your novel or you're just doing morning pages. That's how you become a writer, I think, and mm-hmm. that's how you get faith in your own writing and it's how you find your voice as a writer. Mm-hmm. So I think, Getting something down every single day is really important. Um, I think believing in writing the kind of thing that you like to read as opposed to sort of being cynical about it and trying to write the thing that, that you think that other people might want you to yeah. write. Yeah. Um, I think that's really important. Obviously, you know, if you, if you write, um, you know, sort of, uh, German hymns or something like that and you want to write for the children's market that might be in Australia that might be 
a difficult match, but yes. you know, there's there's a there's a friction point between uh, what will what can can possibly get published and the kind of thing that you love. And if you don't love children's books, then you certainly shouldn't be writing them. And if you don't love reading, then you probably shouldn't be writing either. Um, you know, I, I think, but I think I think really write that write that book that you almost dare not write because it seems so scary. Mm. Uh, and I think thirdly, I think have fun with it. Um, it's difficult, you know, it's um, being by yourself a lot is very difficult. Um, spending, you know, rereading your stuff and even 15 minutes after you've written it and you reread it, you think, what was I thinking? This is the worst <laughs> thing I've ever read. But And you do that every single day of your life and that can be, um, that can be difficult and it can make you want to go out and get a real job. But, um, but, but I think sitting, being able to sit with the fact that most of your writing will stink up to up to those fifth or sixth or seventh drafts. Um, if you can sit with that, then you can really you can really be a writer. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it, Tristan. Congratulations on your recent win, and good luck with all the various things you have going on going forward. No problem, and good luck with your books too thank that you. are uh, taking over the world. Oh, yeah, the whole world. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Thanks. Okay. Cool. See ya. I always love hearing from Tristan. Yeah, look, it was a great story. And I look, I, I think that there's two really interesting things for people to focus on in that story. One of them, which really interested me, was the fact that he has gone from being, again, it's, I think the screenwriting background in him, he has gone from being someone who sort of like plotted and outlined every single thing he wrote to being someone who feels like he needs to just start with the idea and see where it takes him. And he feels like he's getting a more organic and sort of more interesting work out of doing that, which I, I found quite interesting. Mm. And the second thing is uh, his thoughts on the author platform and the fact that he, because um, he had quite a profile even when he sort of started writing, yes. um, you know, with his acting background, et cetera. But um, he has tried and has, you know, had a little sort of, you know, dabble in so many different things. Like he had a MySpace page. Who me? Seriously, <laughs> he started early. Yes. So, you know, I, I think it's um, he had a, had some interesting things to say about that too. So anyway, I'm glad that you enjoyed that. Did you know that it would have been 20 years ago, exactly, yes, 20 years ago that I first met, oh, I might have met Tristan earlier than that, but 20 years ago I was a features editor at girlfriend magazine and I commissioned Tristan to write some little stories for us. Oh, there you go. You've been there from the start. Yes. <laughs> Very different world back then. Yes. So let's move on to our app pick for the week. Now this is a really weird one. Oh. And it's really interesting. I think you're going to love it or you're going to hate it, but you know how you said like you've just got to get your first draft out there. After that, the a lot of you, you you got to rewrite, you got to edit and stuff. But sometimes getting that first draft out there, you can get distracted. You can, you know, all those things, procrastinate. This app is called, I don't know how to pronounce it, but it's Ilys, I-L-Y-S, I-L-Y-S. And I'll put the link in the show notes, but it's just Ilys.com. And it's an app where you you it eliminates distractions completely to the point where and, and the point is to get your first draft out or get 
a certain number of words out. So you pick a target. Your target might be, you know, 2,000 words, whatever your target is, 1,000 words, something. And you start typing, but the only thing that you can see on your screen, the only thing is the letter you are typing. Oh, seriously? So you, you have no choice but to concentrate because you can't reread. You have no choice but to get what is in your head through your fingers and onto the keyboard because you can't go back. You have, all you see is the the last character that you typed, and just you just keep on typing and until you reach the target which you pre-selected, and then you can read what you've written. Oh, bizarre! Not for me. Yes, my initial thought is not for me, but I'm curious, so I might try, give the free trial a go. All right, give uh, a go and report back. Mm. Mind you, I can think of some people. So, um, again, in the Facebook support group that we have for NaNoWriMo, there were a couple of people in there this week saying how they were finding it so difficult to turn off their inner editor. Like they, mm. they just wanted to, you know, rather than just pushing forward with their draft, they wanted to go back and edit and polish and, and we were like, just, you know, come on, just, mm. uh, you know, go forward. Like, how hard is it? Go forward. <laughs> go, forward. Um, <laughs> go forward. So maybe maybe something like this would work well for them. Yes, definitely. Mm. I'm keen to give it a go. So we have a working writer's tip this week. And this question comes from Neve. Now, Neve has written to us all the way from Ireland. Oh, hello. Yes. And she has said, hi, Val and Al. First off, I love the podcast. Well, thank you, Neve. Yes. Um, Val, I've done lots of courses with AWC over the years and I know that. I remember the day I was actually teaching that day that Neve walked in the door. Oh. Uh, yeah, it was It was, It was. was the bizarrest um, story of coincidences. But anyway, um, and Al, I enjoy chats on the Pink Fibro Book Club and have signed up to your and Alison Rushby's Facebook NaNoWriMo page. Uh, I was listening to episode 83 of So You Want to Be a Writer and was especially interested in hearing about author bios as last week. I submitted work to a new Irish literary journal, Banshee it's called, and had to provide an author bio. My challenge is that I'm an aspiring author seeking publication. I looked up lots of different author bios, all of whom have accolades, to see how best to present mine, and I managed to write my one paragraph. And so Neve has written, Neve Griffin has recently returned to Ireland, where she lives in her hometown, Galway. She is an artist, photographer, musician, avid reader, and aspiring writer. She is currently working on her first novel, but also writes short stories and poetry. And that's the end of the bio. And Neva said, can you give some advice on what to include in your bio when you have not yet been published nor won any awards? I'm, not sh- I'm sure I'm not the only aspiring author who is scrambling for, this, for direction on this. Take it away, Al. Oh, just I hate it when you throw those to me all the time. <laughs> first, that's not fair, Valerie. Well, no. first of all, I think that Neve should say uh, Neve is a writer yes. because she's a, because she's actually um, submitting to a literary journal. So my first thing would be Neve Griffin is a writer, artist, photographer, and musician. Yes. Stop. Um, she has. I mean, the fact that she's like it's very much makes sense to say that she's in all in Ireland because mm. she's um, submitting to a new Irish literary journal. Mm. So I would say something along the lines of, you know, she's I don't know, re- recently returned to Ireland. Fantastic. Or just Does, say lives in Galway. Lives in Galway um, and is working on her first novel. 
Yeah. Absolutely. Is that what you would say? Mine's very similar. I would definitely Mm. get rid of the word aspiring. Absolutely. Neve, you have been writing for years. You are not an aspiring writer. You are a writer. I know that. And you've written something that you're sending to a literary journal. Yes. So how are you aspiring? (laughs) Yeah, and you've been published in countless um, countless publications as a journalist, you are a writer. Mm. There is no doubt. So I would say Neve Griffin is a writer. You know, and I, I, I would say who lives in Galway. I wouldn't – I don't think it adds any value to say that you've recently returned to Ireland unless you recently returned after, you know, going on some kind of writing retreat or something. But otherwise mm. it's kind of irrelevant. Um, and I would say she is a writer of short stories and poetry because mm. guess what, Neve, You write short stories and poetry. Mm. And as Al said, I would say, and is currently working on her first novel. Mm. So I don't know why in the world you would put in the word aspiring when mm. you are not aspiring. You are a writer. You've been writing for years. I've read your writing. It's excellent. Mm. So, yeah, it's mm. definitely just own it. Mm, mm. Absolutely. Yeah. Like you wouldn't say you were an aspiring freelancer if you sent in a freelance pitch. So why yeah. would you why would you do that? Yeah. No, I'm with you. So mm-hmm. I think, yeah, just you know, take it on board. You are a writer. Keep it simple. Um, I think I think the fact that she's an artist, photographer, and musician is actually quite an interesting yes. thing. So I would I would keep that in there. Yes. And but put um, writer first. But put writer first. Mm. Precisely. Mm, definitely. All right. Good. Hope that's helpful, Neve. Yeah, really. Hope that's helpful. <laughs> Well, I I have Neve to thank for my current um uh what should I say I don't foray know. into MMA and cage fighting. What? <laughs> Neve, what have you done? No, well, because many many years ago, I was sitting at home one day watching Foxtel, and there was this documentary on Foxtel about um uh, a Thai kickboxing gym in Thailand and it featured an American kickboxer, an Irish kickboxer and a Thai kickboxer and it followed their journeys into, you know, training and ultimately to their fight. And the um, Irish kickboxer was a woman and she was a world champion kickboxer and I I was riveted at this documentary and as soon as the documentary was over, I started Googling kickboxing gyms in my area. This was years ago. Mm. And uh, and I'd, I'd never forgot it because it was just such – there was something about it that just mesmerized me about this, this, this documentary that was set in Thailand. Mm. Anyway, fast forward six months or even a year and I'm teaching magazine writing at, in Sydney in Milson's Point mm. and I go around the class and everyone introduces them themselves and this woman talks about how she's – you know, been training in kickboxing and I'm looking at her and the penny starts to drop. And I said, were you in a documentary? Was it Neve? It was Neve. Oh, Neve, I hope your novel is about kickboxing. (laughs) I sincerely hope that you are using those stories because clearly – it's, it's memorable. It's many years ago now, but that was yeah, that was no. Neve, and and uh, I was like, oh my god, I love that documentary. It just it got me obsessed with this thing. Anyway, so I've on and off kind of how fantastic just enjoyed the you know look, watching people kickbox, and you know every so often I just have a go at just 
hitting and punching things. But uh, about a month ago, I finally found a local, but it was always too far away and, you know, because I like to be, I like things to be convenient for me. But about a month ago, I finally found a local MMA, cage fighting, kickboxing, you know, blah, 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 gym. And yeah, forget the seven minute workout. I've started training there. You, you are only forgetting the seven-minute workout because you never remembered to do it, ever. But yes. okay, whatever. But so now so now you're going to be a cage-fighting machine. So, Neve, this, this is all thanks to Neve. So it was really – See how you've changed her life, Neve? Thank you so much. I can't believe you don't have kickboxer in your bio. What's going on? Oh, yeah, I've got to get work up to that. <laughs> anyway, what's Anywho. happening with your newsletter this week, Al? I love your newsletter. Oh, thank you. Uh, well, excitingly, I've I've created uh, two free cheat sheet downloads. If you sign up for my or and subscribe to my newsletter, you will receive my top ten tips for freelance writers, or my top ten tips for writers brackets fiction. So um, it would be great to see you on my newsletter list, and I am offering my the best that I have in my head for you. Love a cheat sheet, Love and a cheat sheet. also Alison has been busy working on a new course with the Australian Writers Centre. <gasps> I have. I'm so excited. Yes. I'm, it's nearly there, people. It's, yeah, it's nearly yeah. there. It's fantastic. Yeah. And it's called How to Build Your Author Platform. And there's so much good information and some really useful tips and cheat sheets and things like that in there as well. So register your interest at writerscentercomau slash platform because if you register your interest early, you'll get uh, advance notice of some pre-launch specials. Yes. So – uh, until next week, what are you doing? Oh, what am I doing? Well, you know, I'm, I'm preparing because I'm heading up to Sydney, um, not next week, but the week after I've got days and days and days of exciting things. I'm doing uh, a couple of days of school visits mm. and then I'm also part of the Sydney Writers Festival's author roadshow, which is, is, uh, mm. going to be, um, going to the West of Sydney and talking to lots and lots of kids about writing and, um, I'm pretty excited about that. I'm really looking forward to that. So cool. um, I'm preparing for that. I'm finishing off bits and pieces of other things. I'm writing my NaNoWriMo manuscript, obviously. Oh, yes. And I'm gearing up for a couple of very big announcements on my website and in my Ooh. newsletter. Yeah, so I'm preparing for those. Ooh. So that's what I'm doing. That's exciting. Lots of stuff, yeah. Uh, I'll be heading to the Gold Coast, actually, to speak at um... – the We Are Podcast Conference of all things. Ooh, so that should you? be interesting. Just to... I can't believe you're going without me, given that we are podcast. That's right. Exactly. You should come. We could have had the Val and Al show. I know. You should come. It would be fun. Uh, and then straight after that, heading to Melbourne to um, hang out with the co-host of my other podcast, So You Want to Be a Photographer. That's... <laughs> <laughs> I'm sensing like a theme here. <laughs> yes. no. you think anyway uh where do we find you online al uh you'll find me at alisontate.com a-l-l-i-s-o-n-t-a-i-t.com you'll find me on twitter at at al tate a-l-t-a-i-t and you will find me on facebook at alison tate writer um lots of places i love a good chat please come and talk to me 
Yeah, she does love a good chat. Yeah, have you, maybe maybe they're onto that, given that they've heard <laughs> us in this podcast. You'll find me at Valerie Koo on Twitter and Instagram and uh, also connect with me on Facebook. Uh, just search for Valerie Koo. And uh, also, if you want a daily dose of uh, inspiration, check out the Writers' Centre Instagram as mm. well, which is Writers' Centre AU because uh, it's going off in there. It is. Those quotes, those motivational quotes just – get me going every day there you go so thanks for listening everyone and we look forward to chatting to you next week we do bye this week's giveaway is maxi and the magical money tree a book by tiffany hall you might be more familiar with tiffany as one of the personal trainers on the biggest loser but she's also an author of children's fiction this book explores what would happen if you found a money tree in your house Entries close Monday, 9 November 2015, but if you're listening to this podcast in the future, don't worry. There will be a new book giveaway at writerscentercomau slash win that you can check out. In the meantime, if you're looking for the show notes to this episode, go to writerscentercomau slash podcast.